The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We begin today with the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 10. Quote, God commands Abraham to offer Isaac. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He called to him, Abraham. And Abraham answered, Yes, here I am. Take your son, God said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. There, on a mountain that I will show you, offer him as a sacrifice or burnt offering to me. Early the next morning, Abraham cut some wood for the sacrifice, loaded his donkey, and took Isaac and two servants with him. They started out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham saw the place in the distance. Then he said to the servants, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there and worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham made Isaac carry the wood for the sacrifice, and he himself carried a knife and live coals for starting the fire. As they walked along together, Isaac spoke up. Father, Abraham answered, Yes, my son. Isaac asked, I see that you have the coals and the wood, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham answered, God himself will provide one. And the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place which God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. He tied up his son and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he picked up the knife to kill him. End quote. It's a vivid, striking story, one that stands out even in a book that's full of remarkable narratives. Another compressed narrative, like the nativity scene, which invites us to speculate about the details that are not there, and not just details, but key elements, the people's motivations, their thoughts, the consequences. We are left wondering what things mean, what actions mean, what snippets of dialogue mean. Sometimes the book explains these things to us. Other times they are explained by someone else, a pastor or a priest or a rabbi or other holy figure or a parent or a friend or a philosopher. In this case, Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century wizard of Copenhagen, who wrote a book about these lines called Fear and Trembling. We'll examine his story and the whole Abraham and Isaac story today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here today. Do I sound like Mr. Rogers when I say that? Well, then I sound like Mr. Rogers when I say that, because I am glad you're here today. I don't thank enough people in my life. Today, I want to thank a guy who's never heard of me, Paul F. Tompkins, whose work I have enjoyed in 
various formats over the years. Paul struggles with his mental health at times, which is deeply unfortunate because he is on podcasts. The guy, look, if Sprezzatura has a personification, an embodiment, it's, it's just about, well, I suppose it's just about every Italian man I've ever met, and most of the women, too, I suppose. If Sprezzatura, <laughs> Sprezzatura you know what Sprezzatura is, right? It's nonchalance with a big dose of bonhomie. Easygoing, kind, generous, above it all. Stylish without trying too hard, even if you are actually trying very hard to be that stylish without trying too hard. When you wear suits, here's what it is in men's fashion. When you don't match pieces of a suit, you have a jacket from one suit and you pair it with trousers from a different suit. You know what that's called in English? They'll say it's a mismatched suit. They'll say, oh, those are odd trousers. That's the term, the official term, odd. In Italian, they wear it, they pull it off, and they call it sprezzatura. You don't care, and you still look better than everyone else. Not that you're sloppy. Maybe you've worked very hard on getting this right on your outfit. You've put a lot of thought into it, but you can present it with a studied nonchalance. That's Paul F. Tompkins when he comes on to a podcast. He's not all sweaty and desperate like me, scrambling around. He is the king of comedy podcasts in my book. And he's Pritzatura to his core. He comes across as casual, as relaxed, as sane and untroubled, reasonable and unperturbed, unperturbable. And he's frankly, better than everyone. He has that persona. Generous, kind, patient, a glue guy if he needs to be, but funnier than everyone without trying too hard. The yeast in the batter, the spice in the recipe. I'm not a huge fan of improv comedy in general, but I'm a huge fan of it when he does it. And his wife is wonderful too, Janie. Hilarious in a different way. Those two helped me make it through the pandemic with their Stay F. Homkins podcast, which came out every Friday night. A little bit of a life preserver for me. Make it from Friday night to Friday night. I thank them for that. So anyway, I am glad you're here today, dear listeners. You helped me get through the pandemic too, whether you knew it or not. And I'm glad Paul is out there doing the work, and I thank you, and I thank him, and I hope you are all doing well. Okay, on a happier note, we have a story today about a father willing to kill his son with a knife and burn him up. (laughs) Happy notes, just another sunshiny day here on the History of Literature. It's nice outside, and in here we are in gloomy Copenhagen with gloomy Kierkegaard, but sometimes that's good too. And some of you might be saying, oof, another day of Kierkegaard. Wasn't it bad enough hearing about how he jilted Regina, the love of his life, and how she never really got over it, and he never did either. But hey, literature isn't here just to deliver happy talk, people. It's here to stretch us out in ways that feel good. It's mind yoga. So, Let's down a bowl of curd, throw the clay bowl onto the floor, and smash it into bits. Let's crank up the heat and start the positions. Are you comfortable? Good. Are you less than comfortable? 
Even better. You'll thank me later. And I'll probably thank you because it's that kind of a day. Thanks all around. But first, before we get to Kierkegaard, let's hear an email from a listener. This comes from Nathan. Subject, theory regarding Henry Miller and George Costanza. Hello again. This is Nathan, your faithful listener who reads with his ears. If you recall, you read and responded to my note in the Beatrix Potter episode. Still a thrill for me to be part of the show. (laughs) My daughters were thoroughly impressed with my obvious celebrity status, and my wife has a thing for rabbits. So thanks again. Well, you're very welcome, Nathan. I'm glad to hear it. Hello to your daughters and wife as well. And we have no rabbits here this episode, so your wife is a bit out of luck this time, but you will get some more of that sweet, sweet history of literature celebrity status. You're taking a second sip of that potent elixir. So tell your daughters that their father has hit the big time again. Back to the email. Nathan writes, I am sure I am not the only person who has put this theory forward, but I am convinced after listening to the discussion on Henry Miller in episode 400 that I can at least partially explain his high profile in the 1990s. Hmm. Okay, Nathan. Interesting. I'm listening. What was it? We have other theories on the table. A new edition that came out, a movie, some shift in cultural sensibility. I'm listening, Nathan. I've heard all of those, but I'm listening. Nathan says, quote, It was because of the author and specifically Tropic of Cancer... I'm sorry, let me read that again. It was because the author and specifically Tropic of Cancer were mentioned as part of an episode of Seinfeld. If you recall, I believe it is the episode with George and the long overdue library book. I think given the popularity of the show, this is one of those strange points of overlap between popular culture and literature. Call me crazy, but there you go. Thank you for the years of hard work on the show, and I still think my suggestion of oral storytelling slash audiobooks would be a really interesting episode. Now that I think of it, there's a Seinfeld reference there as well. If you recall George attempting to listen to an audiobook about risk management, but discovering that the voice of the narrator was too close to his own. Anyway, I will continue to be all ears and relatively little eyes. Have an excellent day, Nathan. P.S. Once again, Cormac McCarthy, hit the road, Jack. Mm. Thank you, Nathan. Man, another listener recently said, keep on keeping on, Jack. I love those phrases. They take me back. 1976, and I'm putting decals on my lunchbox, and I've got patches on the knees of my jeans. A buzzard. Very cool. I was a cool kid in my Mork t-shirt. I feel like a nimnal. That's what that one said. Only the orchid cognoscenti knew what that even meant. And I was wearing it on my shirt. How unnimnal-like of me. Thank you for the email, Nathan. I didn't remember that particular episode of Seinfeld all that much, but then I went back and looked it up on YouTube, looked at a few clips, and it all came back to me, of course. The Overdue Library Book. It was a great episode with the great Philip Baker Hall playing the part of the librarian detective who tracks Jerry down. 
I think that's who it was anyway. That could be part of it, of the Henry Miller renaissance in 1990. I, I, my recollection, actually, is that the resurgence came a little bit earlier. But I do wonder. Maybe that sent people toward Henry Miller in the 1990s. Guess what? We have an expert coming. We'll ask him when he's here. He worked at the Henry Miller Museum. We can say, did the Seinfeld episode lead to a rise in attendance at the museum? Did people come in talking about the episode, asking questions about it? Did the museum do anything, put up an exhibit or anything? Because Seinfeld, I don't think it was, I don't think it was on a level of Oprah's book club or anything that was sending people toward books in the 1990s, but a lot of people watch that show, and even a small fraction of that audience would be huge in literature terms. So we will ask. And yes, Nathan Cormac McCarthy is on the list. This fall, Mr. McCarthy has two books coming out, and everyone will be talking about him, and I don't know if that will make me more or less likely to finally hit the road, as you say, as you know. I like to zig where others zag. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary of Bloomsday. I, that might be a time for me to sit out a discussion of Ulysses, even though Mike and I are planning to do one. But uh, there will be so much in all the publications, all the podcasts. I don't know if I have anything that different to add. So maybe we'll wait. Maybe the 101st year, second, 103rd year, when no one else is talking about it. Maybe that's the time to take a look. Okay. Turning to Kierkegaard, we are going to hear who he was when he started writing Fear and Trembling, where he was in his career and his life journey. For him, those are kind of the same thing, actually. We'll hear some possible sources for the title. You might have noticed that the words Fear and Trembling were not in the passage I read. But those phrases are worth exploring. They're in the Bible in a couple of spots. We'll look at where that is. We'll look at what does the Abraham and Isaac story mean to someone who is not a believer, someone who has doubts, who doesn't start from a position of faith. If you subtract faith and just look at these characters and what they're doing, how does the narrative look to you? And not to hide the ball from you or anything— I stopped the narrative at the point where Abraham picked up the knife, ready to kill his son, but the story, of course, continues. As you probably know, God stops Abraham. He doesn't allow him to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham then sees a ram that's been caught in some bushes, which gives them a different sacrifice to make, and God is pleased. He rewards Abraham for demonstrating his faith in that way which we'll talk about. And then we'll explore the Abraham and Isaac story in the context of Christianity and what in particular drew Kierkegaard to it. What was his understanding of it, and what does that mean to us today? So, a lot to cover, but we will do it. Fear not, everyone. Tremble not. I've got my odd trousers on. I'm spritzaturing like there's no tomorrow. Quick break and then more and more and more.
Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, so Kierkegaard published Fear and Trembling in 1843, a couple of years after he broke off his engagement with Regina Olson and turned to a life devoted to God and authorship, which he saw as his destiny, his fate, his calling. He didn't know why he was writing exactly when he had those torrentious, torrential months of writing in Berlin after he had broke things off. He believed that he was typically misunderstood he was writing in the dark, writing alone. On his deathbed, he told friends that his life had been one of constant suffering, and he knew that other people might find that vain, but he believed it. He felt these things very deeply. This wasn't a game to him. On the other hand, his reading of Abraham and Isaac, his philosophy, his approach to his philosophy, all of this, all of his writings, it has some game-like qualities. He comes at topics indirectly. He hides behind pseudonyms, and he has a dreary sense of humor, a grim sense of humor. Most readers will throw this book down in boredom, he'll say. He's self-aware, even as he sometimes seems powerless to change. He's gripped in some kind of agonizing, I-can't-help-myself-but-it's-real torment. And when he wanted to go deepest into Christianity, to understand Christianity in Christendom, he turned to this story, Abraham and Isaac. Let's consider the story that I read at the outset, the one in the book of Genesis. As you might already know, there's more about Abraham before and after the passage I read. Abraham comes after Adam and Noah. He was descended from Noah, and he is viewed as the common patriarch of what are called the Abrahamic religions, including Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. After Abraham, there's a branching off due to his having had two sons, the first of whom was called Ishmael. Ishmael's mother was Hagar. Ishmael is venerated by Muslims. Abraham was married to Sarah, but the two did not have children, and so Sarah offered Hagar, an Egyptian handmaiden, 
to Abraham because Abraham's destiny was to be the patriarch of a great nation of people. Kind of hard to do when you don't have sons. And so in those days, especially. And so Abraham then, after Sarah came up with this idea, took Hagar as his wife, and they, the two of them produced Ishmael. Things then turned sour between Hagar and Sarah, probably not unexpected, and Hagar and Ishmael fled to the desert. They returned, but only under an angel's command, and a word from God to Hagar that her son would be living in conflict with his relatives from then on. Abraham, by the way, was 86 when Ishmael was born. This is part of the story, Abraham's age. Things are looking bleak for childbearing. How can you be the patriarch with no seedlings? Things look even bleaker 13 years later when he's 99 years old and still has no son with Sarah. Sarah herself is 90. And yet God intervenes, and through a miracle, Sarah becomes pregnant with Isaac. This is the boy now who will also carry out the Abrahamic covenant, the nation of descendants favored by God. So the stakes are high. Isaac is the one, the golden child, the second son, but the one of the first wife, Sarah, the legitimate son of a loving couple in their 90s who have long believed that such a son was their destiny but who also had reason to believe, biological reason to believe, that he would never exist. I can't think of another analogy other than perhaps a great artist who believes that he or she will compose a symphony or paint a masterpiece, but who cannot make it happen all of his or her life. And then things seem like they're getting toward the end, and it's not going to happen, except here's where my analogy doesn't work. In this case, our artist, so to speak, is also being told by God, you will do this. It will happen. And still, you don't get it done. And let's say you go deaf or blind or your arms fall off, depending on what your art is. There's something physical, in other words, that's stopping it from happening. You can see how absurd I have to make this analogy just to include all the elements of this story. It's a big deal that they can't have kids and they suddenly do. Isaac, in other words, is kind of a living embodiment of a miracle in Sarah's and Abraham's eyes. We have to accept a few things to make the Bible passage work for us. We have to accept that God speaks to these people and angels appear somewhat regularly. We have to accept that people live to be much older than we ourselves can imagine living. For the last one, we can say, well, the earth was less polluted then. Life was maybe easier. Maybe living long was possible. It happens. Things like that change. Could a woman become pregnant at age 90 back then without a miracle? I guess, who knows? Does that really matter? I don't know that there's enough biological or anthropological evidence to say one way or the other, but from the narrative, it seems that they found it pretty rare, just as we might today or we would today. None of this really matters because we don't read the story to learn about science. We're talking about humans and religion and origin stories and creation myths and lessons and metaphors or literal truths delivered for true believers. For the rest of the details and maybe for the the long lives and so forth, we read this in the context of faith, which is the right way to read the Abraham and Isaac story, which is all about that faith, after all. 
You can't understand the story as it's intended without understanding the concept of faith and the role that faith plays in the hearts and minds of the religious seekers and followers. But in order to truly appreciate the story and how important faith is, let's subtract faith from it and see what's left of our narrative. What if we read the story of Abraham's offering of Isaac with zero faith? as if it were one of Aesop's fables or a a bedtime story written outside the context of religion. What if all you had were the bare bones of the story? A man believes in God and does what he hears God telling him to do. Don't even call it God. Let's say a man believes in a voice and does what he hears this voice telling him to do, and then he acts on it, and then the voice swoops in again and stops him from completing the action and says... Well, now I trust you. Let's hear the rest of the story so we're all on the same page about what happens with God after that. Remember, I stopped at the knife being picked up to kill Isaac. Let's resume the story there. This is, I'll read you lines 9 and 10 again and then keep going. When they came to the place which God had told them about, told him about, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. He tied up his son and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he picked up the knife to kill him. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. He answered, Yes, here I am. Don't hurt the boy or do anything to him, he said. Now I know that you honor and obey God, because you have not kept back your only son from him. Abraham looked around and saw a ram caught in a bush by its horns. He went and got it and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham named that place, The Lord Provides. And even today, people say, On the Lord's mountain, he provides. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, I make a vow by my own name, the Lord is speaking, that I will richly bless you. Because you did this, and did not keep back your only son from me, I promise that I will give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky or grains of sand along the seashore. Your descendants will conquer their enemies. All the nations will ask me to bless them as I have blessed your descendants, all because you obeyed my command. End quote. Now, this is a strange story outside of the context of religion. And in the context of religion, everything here makes sense. It fits together. God exists and is powerful. We live to obey God's commands. Obeying God, serving God is the highest calling imaginable, higher than anything we can do on earth. Abraham, in this context, is a hero. He's willing to do the worst imaginable thing, sacrificing his beloved son, the one he's waited all these years to sacrifice. And his willingness to do this, his service to God, not only saves him, but all of his descendants. His his descendants will conquer their enemies because of this act of Abraham. Now, you might say, well, that's convenient for the people who are writing this narrative, who are looking for reasons why they are special and chosen and, and why they should be motivated to persist, and why they should have hope, and why they should justify any conquering acts they do, well, okay, fine. 
That's outside the context of religion. Within the context of religion, this all makes sense. Take away the idea of serving God, and you'll see how how horrible the story actually is. It's not the best or highest or most spiritual activity one can imagine in the secular context. If we're trying to come up with rules of behavior for people or moral principles to follow, it's just about the worst, isn't it? Abraham doesn't tell the boy's mother where he's headed, first of all. A lie, by omission at least. Imagine making a decision like this about your son without including your wife. By the way, I'm going to kill our son today. No, 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 he just takes him. Is that ethical? Is that correct behavior morally? Is that justified within the context of religion? You say, well, those aren't the right questions. He's doing God's will. That's, there's, who says he needs to include other people? That, but stay with me on this thought experiment, because that's what philosophers have to do all the time. They ask questions like, when is lying justified? Is it ever justified? When do the ends justify the means? And before we even get to the idea of the murder, or the about-to-murder, we have the deceit. And in the secular context, you can't always fall back on, well, God trumps ethics, because not everyone believes in God. Excuse me, and not everyone believes in the same God. And we're trying to talk about human beings and what they should do in all cases, at all times, and see if there's anything that tells us what to do when God is silent, when he's not heard, when he contradicts himself. No one is more certain than human beings are free, that no one is more certain that human beings are frequently wrong than God is. God tells us that all the time, right? <laughs> Lowly sinners. That's what you are. You're wrong. So it stands to reason that we might be wrong when we think we hear God, right? And we should try to use our little brains to figure out how to be good, even if we're wrong about what God wants, or if God is silent. So you can say, well, lying, that's bad. It's one of the, it ends up being one of the commandments, sort of, bearing false witness against one's neighbor. But... You can find lots of exceptions to the idea that lying is bad. There's times when it's good to lie, especially lies by omission. You can be a good person, I think, in most moral moral philosophical schemes. Most of them will recognize that you can be a good person and still tell untruths. You can have very good reasons The Nazis are pounding on your door and asking where to find your Jewish neighbors. Shrugging your shoulders can be a lot better than saying they're hiding in the basement down the street. Right? There can be good reasons and have you can produce good outcomes by telling lies or by omitting truths. But what about murder? Can you say the same thing about murder? Murdering your own child, sacrificing a child 
for a deity. Abraham travels with Isaac for three days, planning the whole time to kill him. Kill him with a knife and burn him. You can water it down and say he he knew somewhere in his heart that God would never ask him to actually do it. And you can read the part where Abraham says God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice as him knowing that that he he knows he would never have to kill his son. But that's not really how the story works. If you're reading that into it, you're not really reading the story. If Abraham was confident that he'd be stopped thanks to God's love, if knowing God will never want me to actually go through with it, and so I can just pretend like I'm going to, if this was all just some kind of play acting, a performance, a game of chicken, then God would not really be testing Abraham, would he? The reward that Abraham earns in God's eyes is not that Abraham put on a performance and and got really close, but that he was truly willing to do it. Then he says, don't hurt the boy. Now I know you have not kept back your only son. That's, that's what God wanted. That's what God got. That was the test, and Abraham passed. Now, within the context of religion, we have a man who's willing to make an ultimate sacrifice. It's up there with Jesus. Maybe even higher to sacrifice your beloved son? Incredible. It's dramatic. It's powerful. It's a a demonstration almost without parallel. But take religion away, and we're left with a tale of deceit, if not outright lies at the start. Lies to Sarah, lies to Isaac, and then a willingness to commit murder and psychological torture. Even accepting that Isaac survives. Isaac is there. He sees it all. He's young. He sees his father pick up a knife. Abraham makes him carry his own wood for his own sacrifice. He ties him up. On top of the wood, Isaac at this point has to know what's happening to him. He's on top of of a pile of wood on an altar with live coals and his father standing there above him holding a knife. We would put someone in jail for what Abraham does up there on that mountain. There's no question about it. If you did that to a, a pet, you might go to jail. You'd be viewed as monstrous. But to do it to a boy, your own son, who looks up at you with love and from a position of vulnerability, civilized society today would send you to jail and not think twice about it. Our moral and ethical consensus on this is quite clear. You don't do this to kids. And you would agree. Even Abraham would agree. This is kind of the point of the story. Abraham is holding nothing back. Imagine the different ways that Abraham could act here. When God tells him to offer Isaac for sacrifice, he could say no. He could say, God, I refuse. God, it cannot be the case that you are asking me to murder him. Murder me instead. I believe you are good, God, and cannot be asking me to do something this cruel and barbarous. Send me to hell if I'm wrong. Take away the promise that my descendants will be great. Or he might say, I know you speak to people, God, 
But I know Satan does too, and I believe this must be Satan trying to deceive me. God, if you really want me to sacrifice Isaac, you must send me a sign. I will. I'll go up there on with. The, I'll go up there to the mountain with him. But I'm not going to raise the knife. I'll go up there and and sit with him, and you can strike him with lightning if you think he's. He needs to be dead. But don't ask me to play the part of a demon. That can't be the right thing to do, and I'm not going to lie to my wife either. She must be part of the decision, and and if if the boy asks me what we're doing, I will tell him the truth, that I was told to sacrifice him by what I perceive to be the angel of the Lord, and I don't know exactly what's happening, but I will do everything in my power to keep him alive and safe, because my duty as a parent and my frailty as a human being demands that I do no less. That's not at all what Abraham does. He accepts. Yes, here I am is the only thing he says. Says it twice. He hears the news, and in our compressed narrative, we don't know what he thinks or what he says, other than he lies to the servants, sort of. He says the boy and I are going to worship over there, which is true only in the sense of a cannibal saying, I'm inviting you to join me for dinner, and then putting the guest in the pot to make a soup out of him. The boy and I will go worship. That's more deceit. But what is Abraham thinking? We don't know. Is he furious? Not from any clues we get in the text. Is he full of doubt? He doesn't seem to be. Kierkegaard imagines it's anxiety, but that might be something that we're supplying to this compressed narrative. We think there must be anxiety because the stakes are so high. This is Isaac, the golden child, the miracle, the fulfillment of the promise. Decades of longing by Abraham and his beloved Sarah have finally culminated in this boy. We imagine that that produces anxiety in Abraham. We can imagine fear and trembling in Isaac as well, bound on the wood as he is, and and maybe fear and trembling in Abraham's hand as he picks up the knife, wondering if he might be wrong. Maybe. What if he misheard? What if he was deceived? And just, what if this is correct, but what a what a monstrous thing to do? What if? What if? What if? Why? 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 But there's no fear and trembling in the story. The phrase comes from elsewhere in the Bible. We will explore that and see why it actually does apply in Kierkegaard's analysis of the story after this. Fear and Trembling. Where did Kierkegaard get that title? We associate it with Abraham and Isaac now, but that's because of Kierkegaard. It's not in the Bible that way, but we find the phrase in a couple of other spots. Here's one in Psalm 55. This is the prayer of, of, sorry, the prayer of someone betrayed by a friend. 55. Hear my prayer, O God. Don't turn away from my plea. Listen to me and answer me. 
I am worn out by my worries. I am terrified by the threats of my enemies, crushed by the oppression of the wicked. They bring trouble on me. They are angry with me and hate me. I am terrified, and the terrors of death crush me. I am gripped by fear and trembling. I am overcome with horror. I wish I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and find rest. I would fly far away and make my home in the desert. I would hurry and find myself a shelter from the raging wind and the storm. That's interesting. So interesting in the context of Abraham and Isaac, especially. I am worn out by worries, worn out by my enemies crushing me. I want to fly away from it all. I'm gripped by fear and trembling. Who would this apply to in the Abraham and Isaac story? Maybe Hagar and Ishmael, who did have these enemies, who were overcome by them, and who literally did go to the desert away from their enemies. But who is the betrayer? The psalm is called the prayer of someone betrayed by a friend. Who's the betrayer in Isaac and Abraham? Who's the friend who has caused this angst and anxiety? Isn't it God himself? God is the one who asks Abraham to go on this journey to do the unthinkable, the immoral, the worst imaginable thing. Who would you imagine would want to fly away in the Abraham and Isaac story? Abraham, right? Hear me, O God, don't turn your back on me now. The psalm is about enemies on earth, but what about the enemies within? What if it's Abraham's voices, the ones compelling him to do this atrocious act? What about the enemies within? What if the police are the ones attacking you? Where does the 911 call go then? So, that's Psalm 55. There is another example of fear and trembling in the Bible, which nudges us closer to Kierkegaard, actually. This one comes from Paul's letters to the Philippians, his second letter to the Philippians, which I will read in the King James Version from the Bible, starting with verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. End quote. Okay. Paul says, look at Jesus, who was God here on earth, fashioned as a human being, obeying, obeying God all his way to the cross. And God has exalted him for it. It's to the glory of God that we praise Jesus Christ and worship him. So now you, 
you lowly sinners, you know what you should do. You work this out to want to do God's will and to actually do God's will. Carry out what God wants from you. Praise Jesus and obey God and work out your salvation. And here's the key part, the fascinating part, at least to me. Paul doesn't say, do this with with confidence and good spirits. He doesn't say, walk with your head held high. He doesn't say, sing and shout and thump your chest and beat the drums for everyone to know that you've found the right way and to call for all of them to trust you and follow you on this path. No, Paul says you work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. This is the awesome power of what I'm pointing you toward. This is what it means. This is what it takes. Fear and trembling. There will be no, okay, thanks, I got it. Look at me, I'm on the way, strolling along. No, you'll be in a dark place like Kierkegaard. You'll suffer like Kierkegaard. You'll be scorned as he was, misunderstood as he was, unhappy as he was. You'll quiver. This is not going to be easy. It's not going to be an easy life, and it's not going to be an easy path. Nietzsche used to talk about the abyss. He refers to the abyss so much. He'll say, I stared into the abyss. I looked at the abyss. I forced myself to keep going and so on. Always the abyss. Comes up again and again and again. And so one day, I was was confused. Went to my professor in college. Went to office hours. And I said, what is the abyss? What is it? I wondered if he had described it somewhere that I just hadn't read yet. If it was a a pit of hell filled with fire and brimstone, or if it was just a, a gaping abstraction something supernatural, or what? What does the abyss mean? When Nietzsche says he looks, I looked into the abyss, and I've returned. What is the abyss? It's a good question for a professor. If someone asked me that, I'd probably just say, I have no idea. (laughs) But that's what professors are for. My professor said, well, I think it's what Nietzsche meant When he says, imagine all your preconceptions, your most foundational beliefs that you and everyone in society have used to organize yourselves, and society has used it to organize itself. All your institutions have this as an underpinning. All your your means of governing yourself and living together, your shared experiences, your codes of ethics, your morality. Imagine all that being swept away. Your music, your art. Imagine all that being swept away. It's gone. God is dead. He's not there. Everything you've based on him and on that is gone. But you're not just giving up God You're not just giving up a belief in a deity. You're giving up everything you have. Everything that all the rocks that you walk on is gone now. It's sand. It's water. It's air. And now you have to see what can live and endure and persist 
knowing that maybe it can't, maybe everything you know, life as you know it is doomed. Maybe it will be replaced by something. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's a world of maybes. No longer a certainty when God was there. God is dead. This is Nietzsche, of course. God is dead. I'm not pronouncing that myself. It's Nietzsche. God is dead. And now what's left behind is a world of maybes. And it could get a little better. And it could get a little worse. Maybe a lot better but maybe a lot worse, and you don't know. That's the abyss, said my professor. The abyss of uncertainty in the face of seismic, epistemic change. Well, I staggered out of that office. I can't remember what I did next. Probably I went back to the dorm and lay in bed, staring at the ceiling while Mike Palindrome played Tetris on my Macintosh SE. In any case, this is the kind of depth we need to recognize if we are to understand Kierkegaard's project in Fear and Trembling. This is the fear and trembling. The phrase Kierkegaard's uses, Kierkegaard uses is not an abyss you reach, but is more like a starting point. He calls a religious person a knight of hidden inwardness. The secret depths that an individual can hold. He compares it to a secret chest containing a precious treasure, the hope of eternity. The chest has a spring that will open up the chest, but the spring is concealed and you can only open it by pressure. This pressure for the religious person is hardship. And when you apply enough of it to the treasure chest, when you squeeze it hard enough, and exert enough hardship on your hidden inwardness, which is a treasure chest, but it's closed. When you squeeze it hard enough, the content appears in all its glory. Elsewhere, he describes it, compares it to an animal whose defense is that it has wings and can fly away, but the wings only appear when the animal faces mortal danger. These are the extremities that the individual must face, must subject oneself to on the religious journey, or must endure, anyway, before finding his or her way to God's love and to salvation. Christianity is at its worst when it pretends to have answers or when it tries to logically declare things that aren't logical. Kierkegaard believed he doesn't think the church should try to prove Christianity or defend it. The church is there to help individuals, for these are individuals making choices. They have that power. They've been given that power. We all have this power. This is sort of the why Kierkegaard is often seen as the father of existentialism. Choices are there to be made, and humans make them. That's who we are. That's what we consist of. And the church, says Kierkegaard, is there to help individuals make the leap of faith. God is love and gives your life its purpose. That's where you'll arrive if you've made this inner journey successfully. If you've applied enough pressure to yourself and your soul You don't need to start with this 
You should try to achieve it. But if you start with doubt, as Descartes did, you won't get there. The paradigm of getting this wrong, of starting at the wrong place, is Descartes. I think Kierkegaard would agree with that. I was so excited when my math teacher... Now we're going back to high school. Really giving a nod, a shout-out to my old teachers today. College professor who told me about the abyss. And my math teacher told me about Descartes. I remember saying to him, you know, I really enjoy geometry. I like how these proofs start from something you know for sure, and then you reason your way to something else that must logically follow. I wish life would work like that. And my math teacher said, you should read Descartes. That's his project. He does that. And I said, he does? And my math teacher said, yeah, go read uh, Discourse on Method. And, spoiler alert, he winds up proving the existence of God. I was so excited. I couldn't wait to read it. I got it in this old, faded cover book. Had one of those cloth covers. Opened it up. I read Descartes, and it all fell apart. I didn't think... I I was finding logical holes left and right. I couldn't believe it. And Kierkegaard says, I didn't read Kierkegaard at the time, didn't find him until later, but Kierkegaard says, yeah, that's right. That's the right response. Descartes' method was flawed. You can't do this with a logical system. This isn't like falling in love as it's portrayed in novels. Where it, or in the novels of Kierkegaard's day, anyway, where it happens is like something logical in an equation. He saw her. He fell in love. He he fell. He he saw her blue eyes and her her ringlets falling down to her shoulders, and he fell in love. This is not like that. This is like falling in love as it happens in real life. A lot more complicated than take X, add Y, and get Z, love. Faith isn't like that. Abraham didn't start with doubt. He didn't start with the ethics and the morality of his day, and definitely not with the ethics and morality of our day. As I mentioned, we would put Abraham in jail for his conduct today. Even if he said, God told me to do it. Even if he said, I heard an angel of the Lord commanding me to do it. I tied up my son and got ready to, to, to slaughter him and burn him, but it's all okay because an angel of the Lord commanded me to do it and said my descendants would become a great nation on earth and, and everyone would, would thank me and, and everyone would praise my descendants. My descendants would be great victors. Everyone would wish the Lord had blessed them the way they're going to my descendants are going to be blessed, even if we had all that as evidence before us, testimonial evidence from Abraham himself, we would at a minimum say, okay, not guilty by reason of insanity. We're going to lock him up anyway. Clearly, he's a danger to others, probably himself too. He needs help. In Christendom, on the other hand, Abraham is rewarded by God and revered as a founder of the religion in Judaism and Islam too. Why? Because he made this leap of faith, this blind leap of faith. 
I praised the book of Job way back when, episode five or something. We're on 400 and something now, 409, I think. This was back in episode five. I praised the book of Job because the book of Job truly goes at the dilemma in the heart of religion. If God is good, why is there evil? The book of Job doesn't dance around this question or avoid it or invent logical ways to address it. Doesn't split hairs. It says, yes, that's going to be a mystery for you. Deal with it. I'm God and you're not human. Deal with it. I admire that about the book of Job. Abraham and Isaac is similar. It's a story that goes deep into what religion is truly about. Do you need proof? You won't find it. Deal with it. You need logic or rationality or some kind of thinking your way into this as a moral decision. It won't be there. You need to choose in the absence of all that. And the anguish here is that there's no way out. There's no life preserver. There will be no excuses. You will have nothing to resolve the paradoxes inherent to this dilemma. Kierkegaard looks at the story of Agamemnon and Iphigenia in the context of Greek culture and draws a, con a contrast. Agamemnon is on his way to the Trojan War and he offends the goddess Artemis, who responds by blocking Greek troops from reaching Troy. Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter, a human sacrifice, to placate the goddess. Because war and the fate of a nation is greater than an individual's personal ties. It makes Agamemnon a tragic hero. His wish is to do his duty as a soldier. Therefore, his murder of his daughter is not murder, but sacrifice. Noble sacrifice, even an ethical sacrifice, because his higher wish, his only wish, is to fulfill his duty as a soldier. His wish to be a good father, even his, even his duty to be a good father, just happens to be at odds with a higher calling, his duty to be a good soldier. Wherein lies the tragedy, but also the heroism. He gives up something important in order to be a good father. But it's a tragedy. Aha, you might say. Well, isn't this the same? Abraham gives up his wish to be a good father in favor of his duty to something higher, being loyal to God, being a subject of God. And Kierkegaard says, no, that's not quite right. In Christianity, you give up everything. It's a complete surrender. You don't make choices that will make sense, that can be explained. You will make choices that don't. What drew Kierkegaard to the story of Abraham and Isaac is it's the place where the spiritual rubber hits the religious road. Your sacrifice will be total. Kierkegaard gave up Regina, but it was not enough. He couldn't explain it, just as Abraham couldn't explain anything to Sarah or to anyone else, before or after. The love that Kierkegaard had for Regina was, quote, beautiful and healthy, but not perfect, end quote. It was an infinite love, he thought, but not an infinite and absolute love. For that, he needed God. Not because he loved God in that way, but because he believed he had to try, for God's sake and for his own. Everything you try to reason out ethically, morally, spiritually, it doesn't work here. 
in this realm. You can lie to yourself and say that it's compatible, but it isn't. Leap of faith is not just for doubters, it's for everyone. It's the expression that suits every true believer, every night of faith, because faith is not just a thing you can have and hold. It's not a quality you can possess. It's not even faith at all, really, unless it has that leap in it. Do it or don't do it, but don't tell yourself you've done it when you haven't. It's part of the deal. It's a deal that Kierkegaard took. He was Abraham, suffering in silence, climbing the mountain for three days, saying nothing, his inward journey his alone to make. He tied up his son alone. He tortured him mentally alone. He raised the knife alone. He found God and revered God and loved God and obeyed God and worshipped God and surrendered himself totally to God alone. Nietzsche stared at the abyss. Kierkegaard's abyss was different, and he didn't just stare. He closed his eyes, took a deep breath, opened them again, and leapt. Okay, there we go. Fear and trembling. My thanks to Kierkegaard for delivering that to us, which we we barely scratched the surface of Kierkegaard. My goodness. Kierkegaard is rich material. I hope you go check him out for yourself. We'll do one more episode on the diary of a seducer, which is fun. But you might not be done with Kierkegaard after that either. There's a lot to wrestle with if you seek out the original source. Sometimes I can squash a book for you, like a fly or a poem. I can, well, these aren't flies, are they? They're flowers. Sometimes I can press a flower for you and put it between some pages for you. And sometimes that's enough to get all the beauty for yourself. And sometimes I can only throw up my hands and say, oh, here's your flower. But let me tell you this. I went to an enormous field of flowers and they were all gorgeous. And yeah, here's your flower as promised. But that field really needs to be experienced someday if you have the time and inclination to go. But hey, maybe you can't visit every single field of flowers. There are a lot of them out there. And maybe when you're in the car or folding laundry or making dinner, you don't really have time to go roaming around a bunch of fields of flowers anyway. Maybe you, you just have time to open your book and let the flower breathe a little. And that's what this podcast is for. Here's your flower, your flat flower. Compliments of me. I'm Jack Wilson, your humble flower flattener. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.